Hi everyone, I'm your host, Sean Lee Davis. I'm a filmmaker, conservationist, green entrepreneur, and impact investor. And this is Our Future Nature, a podcast spotlighting the ideas, technologies, and solutions for a more sustainable world. In this season of the podcast, we'll be speaking to advocates, entrepreneurs, scientists, and thought leaders about global environmental and social issues and how we can go about solving them. I aim to separate the real talk from the greenwash and dive deep into novel technologies and solutions to help you understand just how exciting sustainability can be. With that said, let's get on with today's episode. Today, I'm very lucky to have on the podcast Peter Allison, who is an author and a safari guide. And I was very lucky to have gone on safari with very recently in Botswana. And we hit it off, didn't we, Peter? So um, thank you for being on, on the show today. Yeah, um, <clears throat> Peter, you're, you're calling in from the UK, and I believe it's quite hot right now. Tell us a little bit about where you are. Yeah, I'm in a, a little town called Shrewsbury, and I, I live here and haven't heard of it, so don't be embarrassed if you haven't. But it's 30, mid-30s. I, I'm, actually, I'm now a climate change advocate, but not in the Al Gore way. This is making England very livable. I quite enjoy this. So actually, you don't seem to mind. No, oh, I'm going to go burn some coal in the backyard. <laughs> no, I mean, obviously, climate change is a massive problem. But I think anybody now that's sitting there saying, oh, the science isn't in, it's just step outside. It's so obvious that the climate is going absolutely bonkers. My original hometown of Sydney just had a weekend where it recorded more rain than London does in a year. You know, weather patterns around the world are out of whack. You mentioned we were just in Botswana. We were there in June. And if you had said, what is the least likely thing for us to see after a pangolin? I would have said rain. And yet it poured on us. So, you know, and that is entirely unheard of. People with the longest, grayest beards have never had it rain in June before. So we're definitely living in a time of change. And apart from here in the UK, which is going to be very livable if it stays at this temperature, it's not doing the world any good. And apparently the UK wine industry is getting a big bump from this um, because now they can actually grow a decent, decent amount of wine from, from grapes because of the warmer temperatures. So one of the few upsides from this rather depressing picture of, of climate heating. Yeah, there's a, a vineyard not far from where I am and somewhere, I'm somewhere in the Midlands. <laughs> so, so Peter, how did, you get to, uh, how did you get to end up in Shrewsbury on one of the hottest days in the UK, you started off as a boy in Sydney and somehow I read somewhere, probably on Wikipedia, that you ended up in Japan and now you're a guide in, in Southern Africa and Botswana and Namibia. Tell us a little bit about how you got to this stage in your life. Oh, we've only got an hour. Um, yeah, <laughs> circuitously. Um, when I was 16, my sister was finishing high school. She was going to leave for a year, as most people do finishing high school. and. I was desperate for my parents not to notice me. So I lied and got a scholarship to Japan. And that really ignited the, the travel bug, uh, which is a very real disease. Um, and, and probably the most expensive one to, to catch. Um, and so by 19, I was looking for a change and tossed a coin between Africa and South America because of the wildlife in each one. Africa came up heads, and two weeks later, I was landing in Zimbabwe. This was 1994, and back then, because of apartheid, 
Qantas would not fly to South Africa. Nobody would, uh, except UK airlines. And um, so landed in Zimbabwe, bumbled my way around a bit, and ended up as a barman in a safari lodge. And that, after six months, somebody fell over, somebody else coughed a few times, and they said, man down, men down. Very sexist industry. Um, we need you to take a game drive. All you ever do is talk about animals. Gave me a rifle, keys to a Land Rover, and said, out you go. And it's a very exciting proposition. I was 19 years old. Um, growing up in Sydney, I'd not dealt with anything much more dangerous than a parrot. And the idea of being a safari guide was literally fantastic, the literal sense of the world. It was a fantasy. So I said, grab the keys, grab the rifle. I said, fantastic, but full disclosure, never touched a firearm before in my life and also never driven a car. And yet I went out that afternoon. And that was 28 years ago. Baptism by fire? More so for the tourists than for me. And presumably you didn't crash. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's a, a presumption that you have made incorrectly, sir. Um, not with them, fortunately, but prior to driving out with them, I was taken to an area known as One Tree Plain. And at the end of my driving lesson, they needed to rename it. Uh, I'll show you figure that one out. <laughs> I'll figure that one out, Craig. You learned to drive in the bush without any instruction. And, uh, and I presumably it's one of those industries where you just work your way up and learn as you go. Uh, but obviously, the, in the bush, that can be quite fraught with danger, presumably. Uh, did you have any mishaps along the way? Oh, yeah. And, and a lot of them due to inexperience and lack of training. And I do, I need to fly a flag for the industry and say that things have changed entirely in the almost three decades since, um, where now you do require a guiding license. And I didn't even have a driver's license. <laughs> it was such a cowboy time. And um, now you, you need a, a, a specific guide's license. There's licenses to drive a boat that are independent of, of taking a vehicle safari and certainly to walk on a safari. Uh, but back then it was just if you were a warm body and willing and, and to take people out. I mean, I was willing, if not able. And, and that's actually something that carries you through is just enthusiasm. You might have a guide who's incredibly technically proficient. They, they may well have won at Le Mans. They're such a great driver and they're an Annie Oakley shot and they, they know all the facts and figures. But if they turn to you and say, this is an African elephant. They live on average to around 60 years, running through six sets of teeth within that time. Their digestive system is only 40% efficient. You're going to want to kill yourself. You're going to wish elephants were extinct so we'd stop talking about them. Um, so I, I think when you've got someone who's excited about where they are and what they're showing you, it helps your career, even if every other aspect is, uh, I wasn't willingly unprofessional. I just was completely untrained. It was, it was like turning up to, to watch a, like a, a game of, an international game of rugby and you get handed a pair of boots and say, run on. It's like, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> Sorry, team. I'd, I'd want to play for England in that case so they'd lose. Oh, I think England just won the test, actually, with Australia. Yeah, that's, that's yes, exactly. They did, yes. I'm, I'm just getting it yeah. out there before you brought it up. And then some idiot in the, in the stands was like saying to Eddie Jones, you traitor, you traitor. Um, and Eddie Jones got very upset, apparently. Yeah, I don't know right. you can accuse someone of treachery when they were fired. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he was fired exactly. by Australia. What's he meant to do? 
was <laughs> like, oh yes, I would never coach another team. That's a yeah. That's I mean, uh, yeah. There, there is what is it? Half of all, all people in the world have a below average IQ. <laughs> that's yeah. That's definitely one way of of putting it. Thank you, thank you for that that uh, perspective. Yeah. So you wrote this book, uh, which achieved bestseller status, or according to Wikipedia, it did. Uh, called Whatever You Do, Don't Run. And presumably that was based on all of your experience growing up in the bush with little to no experience and becoming uh, Peter Allison, one of the most revered guides in Botswana. And I mean, for any of you out there who haven't had a read, it's, yeah. it's hilarious. But my, my question is, like, what's more important to be a guide? Is it to actually know what you're talking about or is it to entertain your guests and tell us what actually makes a really good guide because not many people have had the honor or the privilege or been lucky enough to go on safari. Uh, I think it's actually a mix of both. I mean, if you are just a pure showman, uh, it's, it's all fluff and it's just the one liners. What you're, you're trying to do is, and it's, I'm, I'm plagiarizing a bit from a friend of mine called Richard Field. and He said a guide, a good guide should be a matchmaker because it's very easy to say, look at this amazing environment in which I live or where I work. Isn't my office incredible? And you're kind of showing off your relationship with the bush or the desert, if you're somewhere like Namibia, rather than allowing the people with you to form their own. Like this is, this is free love, baby. You know, it's, it's just really your, your goal should be for everybody that travels with you to end out saying, that place is absolutely spectacular and, and you, you want them to be desperate to get back there. And ideally, they'll be desperate to preserve it. And so if you've got no content, if you don't actually know what you're talking about and you're not genuinely passionate about anything other than a tip, you're not a good guide. You're, you're just running through, you're, you're, you're an actor just reading the lines. So yeah, I think, I think the, the passion and knowledge are every bit as important as uh, personality. And what would you say is uh, like your number one signal that this guide doesn't know what they're talking about if you're out there on a safari? How do you know if your guide knows what they're talking about versus someone that doesn't? Okay. So if you are, um, if you arrive at a safari camp and you get driven back in and the, the person's dropped seen a yellow billed hornbill and said, it's a flying banana. As you went over the bumpy roads, they've said it's an African massage. Then when you see Impala, they say uh, African McDonald's. These are jokes that weren't funny when they were first said. And I, I, I think the very first humans who arose in Africa must have said them. They've been around forever. And it's just, it's just lazy. It's just lazy. Um, whereas if somebody's actually able to engage with you, to, basically, if you come into camp and the guy said all of that and you spot that there is a female guide in camp, asked to switch to her vehicle because I guarantee you she's had to be twice as, twice as good to be considered half as good. She will be the best guide in the property. That's a tip which I probably shouldn't let out too often, but it's true. I'm sure it's a very male-dominated uh, industry, so it's probably no surprise that, yeah, if you see a female guide, and you don't see many of them. No. But, I mean, do you, do you now see more females coming into the industry? Yeah, and it's it's uh, quite often they've had to be dragged in, and that's the, the misogyny. Funnily enough, is not from the industry, and it's that most people who come on safari, certainly at the, at the luxury end, tend to be a bit older, 
they've they've had to accumulate wealth. It's not cheap coming in a luxury safari. So they've accumulated wealth, which typically, unless they were lucky enough to inherit it young, um, then you know they're they're let's just say they're a little bit closer to the reaper than they are to the stork. Uh, the stork's well in the rearview mirror, and the reaper's getting closer. And so, and and things like misogyny and racism don't get better with age. <laughs> Those things tend to harden. So these people arrive and they see a woman and she weighs 50 something kilos. And they think, how is she going to save me from an elephant? And it's ridiculous because it's up to the vehicle and the driving. And um, there is not a single physical. And, and I'm 80 kilos. That extra 30 kilos I have is of absolutely no advantage when it's a five and a half thousand kilogram elephant. That that small margin there really doesn't add up to anything. So I, I think there was resistance from the guests. That's changed even in my time. Just you know, when I was a kid, people would come and say, We went to the doctors today and there was a lady doctor. A lady. I was my goodness. They weren't sure whether to be scandalized or or so impressed by this, what this woman had achieved with her little lady brain. Uh, um, it's not even remarkable anymore. You literally do not remark on a female doctor. And I think within a decade, we could have that with safari guides. And it'll be great. It'll be great for the industry. Not even from a feminist perspective. It just means we're drawing from a pool of twice as many human beings. The quality, more, de more competition for jobs. There will be better guides because they're going to have to be better to keep up with the women. I think it's it it's, can't happen soon enough. You know, when you go out on safari, you realize that most animals uh, and most of the research on the animals has been done predominantly by men. And you know that because most of the species are named after white colonial men. So there's a bit of a problem there in yep. the whole taxonomy and the classification of, of nature, if you like, like. Is that a problem? You know more about the wild than I do. Is that a problem from a, an understanding point of view? Like, are we really understanding these animals if they've been described to us through the lens of a colonial white man? Yeah, I think there's an absolute problem with that. And, and there's the two aspects, as you pointed out. One is that science has been so male dominated that, um, I mean, you look at someone like Jane Goodall, she was originally mocked for naming animals rather than giving them a designation, the kind of thing Elon Musk would name his child, um, you know, an XC, exclamation mark, whatever it would be. Um, she we had named one troop. They all began with E, another they all began with B. Uh, and she, she, as she described them, she, she would say this guy was grumpy on this day. And people say, no, animals don't have emotions. Like, have you never owned a dog? Have you never owned this? They're merely responding to stimulus. It's like, then what are we doing? What are we doing that's any different? So it took someone who was more emotionally intelligent and who could break off the shackles of scientific rigor, as Jane Goodall did, to, to make people you know, pull their thumbs out of their eyes and actually start watching it properly. Yeah, but I think there's, there's a massive amount of indigenous knowledge that we, we miss. We just miss because we're, we're so convinced that, like you said, a white guy with his head in a book knows more than somebody who's lived their life and, and his family have lived their life for generations in an area observing. But talking a little bit about, you know, classification and uh, obviously scientific rigor versus indigenous observation and, you know, intelligence and observation has been passed down for generations. Have you, in your own experience, um, 
seen a big discrepancy between what the science says and how the indigenous tribes uh, would describe them. And then secondly, uh, of course, you know, science, every year you hear more and more from scientists, these animals are much smarter than we thought they were. It's as if like we, we, we thought that all animals <laughs> apart from ourselves were really thick and now we're actually giving them the benefit of the doubt. But when you go out there, you actually realize that these animals are highly intelligent, conscious in many ways, of course, to varying degrees. But um, maybe you can tell us a moment where you've kind of got close to an animal and thought, oh my God, that, that animal's really very smart, maybe smarter than I am. Or at least have that moment where you kind of look at an animal and think, wow, it's sentient or conscious. Yeah, I, I think it's more that the, when they defy expectations. And so, I mean, I've been saying for, again, for decades, these animals don't read the same books we do. And I've spent most of my bush career in the Okavango Delta. I've been lucky to go to a lot of other places. That is primarily a wetland. And a study done in Kenya probably doesn't apply to the behavior of animals in the Okavango. So um, e even when I, I moved up there, I came from South Africa, the Sabi Sands Game Reserve. And you'd watch leopard or lion there, they'd be crossing a river, you know, shallow water, and on each step, they would flick the water from their paws, all four feet, and it was laborious and stupid, like just walk across and shake it off at the end. And it'd be like drying yourself every 30 seconds in the shower, just anyway, they'd do that because they hate having their feet wet. Mm. Then you get to the Okavango and you will see them playing. And I've seen lions, leopards, and cheetah run through water that they could have easily gone around. They are so accustomed to it. And so the behavior there is, you know, and that's not a, a polar opposite, but an example which was, was two male cheetahs that were known as the steroid boys, unusually large for cheetahs, and they held a territory for far longer than is credible almost. But they were proper rock and roll wrestling cheetahs. They used to bring down zebra, adult zebra, which is again unheard of. Um, that'd be like me beating Mike Tyson in a fight. Um, and at one case, they changed an antelope called a lechwe that you're very familiar with, but anybody that isn't, its defense is it runs to shallow water and it, can, it, it, it almost looks like a skimming stone. It has high rump, its, its feet are splays, they don't sink in, and it just skims over the surface of, of shallow water and any other pre you know, predators are forced to slog through. Just that you, you think trying to run through knee-deep water versus open land, how much slower are you going to go? So the lettery pogo has like four pogo sticks for legs and just bounces through. So this one ran into what amounted to not much more than a puddle. And normally a cheetah requires its prey to be running so it can trip it and then grab the throat as it rolls. In this case, one walked in, grabbed it by the rump, and the bro other brother came and folded his legs behind the lechery's horns and pushed its head into the water and drowned it. And it just decided that maybe, I mean, it's, it's impossible to put your, yourself in the head of one of these animals. Maybe trying to strangle it from underneath put itself at risk. But somehow a cheetah knew it could kill an animal by drowning it, which nobody's ever recorded before or as far as I know since. But this guy did it. So there's just this idea, was that strategy or a fluke? Mm. Who knows? And I mean, and, and then in terms of just overall intelligence, anybody that has worked or run 
worked in a safari camp, run a safari camp, knows that baboons are far smarter than humans. And the, the, anybody that wants to dispute that in camp is just say, because baboons realize that a camp is a great source of food. Just as a supermarket is from us, they're not stealing. They, they just, why work really hard out there when there's a one-stop shop? Um, and every single camp manager is playing defense the entire time. You are never on the front foot. You are only ever reacting to baboons. You are never one step ahead. So that's when you start realizing, oh, we are nowhere near as clever as we think we are. So it's a, it's a great humbling lesson to receive. Yeah, I mean, spending time in the Okavango recently, I mean, the baboons, they're naughty as hell. Uh, they're pretty violent as well. Mm -hmm. uh, they can be quite aggressive, huh? But uh, as, soon as, you, as soon as you have lunch, out they come. But yeah, I mean, incredible to, incredible to watch. Have you had much time or spent much time with chimps or the, prime, the larger primates like chimps and gorillas? Have you um, spent much time with them? I've spent a bit of time with lowland gorillas in the Congo, but you know, there's two Congos. So there's the DRC, which is the completely insane Congo. And then there's the Republic of Congo, which is the moderately sane one, uh, where the capital is Brazzaville. And spent some time with the gorillas there. And that's pretty extraordinary. And you know, something I would recommend for anybody is to go see gorillas if they can. It's definitely on, on my wish list, so hopefully quite soon. Um, but bringing it back to the camp, you are, of course, a camp manager as well. Um, tell us a little bit more, maybe some stories of, of the challenges. Because, of, of course, you know, guests go to these safari lodges. They expect everything to run smoothly. But, of course, you know, nature always has um, a little trick up her sleeve. Tell us a bit about the challenges uh, you face in running a camp. Oh, Talking about your camp, I can hear a challenge in the background. Oh, you can pick up on that, can you? Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, my, my daughter, I, I believe that's antibiotics being administered. Um, sensitive microphone. Oh. Uh, <laughs> oh. Yeah. Oh, so, okay. I mean, here's a challenge for you. Try meeting. No, she's fine. Um, try meeting a woman when you live in a tent. Um, try meeting a woman that doesn't have fur. Let me put it to you that way. Um, yeah, that's certainly a challenge. And everybody <laughs> says, oh, it must be like being a ski instructor. And it's like, no, the, the, the guests are newlyweds or nearly deads. So there's not a lot of opportunity there. And, and, you know, I was a young man. I missed out on all of those shagadelic years. So a bit of disappointment, really. But, but Peter, Peter, you hear about khaki fever. Is that, you know, is that, well, first of all, can you explain that to those of us who are less educated about it? And secondly, did you ever experience this? Yeah, so khaki fever is the name given to um, the passion certain uh, women or men can feel for someone in uniform. And when you're a safari guide, I mean, you've often got epaulettes, and we all know how much sexier they make you. Um, <laughs> and you're wearing khaki the whole time. Uh, it's ridiculous. Animals are colorblind. Um, you, you could wear pretty much any color. But there are certain people, and they get it's akin to them being starstruck uh, of, of you. And, and of course, you know, the, the, the added sexiness of you driving the vehicle, you know, maybe you've got a rifle or not, you know about this exotic place. And uh, so some women fall hard and it's very infrequent for a start that you have young, attractive women, or just let's just say attractive women in the camp. 
and, and even less so that that's the one that gets khaki fever. So one case I had was members of the American women's rugby team on safari and they were great fun. Um, and then they had a few drinks under their belt and three of them who were all played in the front row packed down and said, come on, scrum against us, scrum against us. And I, I there's certain things, <laughs> you know, meant to be just attending to your guests needs as best you can. I was like, no, no, please. No, I'm not, not I'm not. <laughs> For one thing, I wish I was half as masculine as any of them. And I'm saying that with due respect, they would have all been better rugby players than me as well. Um, they had a lot of attributes I would have liked, but none of the attributes led to me desiring any of them. And I really wasn't sure if I wasn't going to end out as the hooker in that proposition. So what a rugby talking today. I don't normally do this, <laughs> but yeah, it, it, that was, it was a time where I was, I actually thought, Oh, I, 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 I am slightly fearing for, <laughs> you know, my, my chaste virtue here. <laughs> I didn't really imagine that would be the case. No, it sounds very dangerous. Um, dangerous situation indeed. Um, but I, I'm glad that, uh, yeah, you, you're, you're here to tell the tale. But sure, I mean, taking it back to more of a serious tone, I mean, you know, you are essentially guiding and making sure that these guests, a lot of them who are city slickers have never been out of the city, um, are having a great holiday, but surrounded by potentially dangerous animals. Uh, for example, hippo, buffalo, uh, and some, some of the big cats, mm -hmm. obviously. How, how do you go about drawing that balance and have you had any stories where guests have kind of got close to being attacked or mauled? Yeah. And I, I think um, there's always two pieces to these puzzles. So most people are pretty respectful of the environment. I think if you've come on safari, it's because you've got an interest in a wilderness area or, or animals. And, and, you know, obviously we, we, hold people back a bit. You know, what we're doing with them is not what we might do if we were by ourselves. We might push the boundaries a bit further, which is actually, it, it sounds, again, like a cowboy sort of behavior, but it's really good as a guide to know if you go closer than this, the animal react in a negative way. And it's not necessarily about you being in danger, but it's you upsetting the wildlife. And then you're going to stop seeing them if they'll just move out of your way. So there are little testers done, but Every now and then you get someone who cannot bear the idea of someone else holding the keys. And I had an incident like that with a German guy, and let's just call him Gunther, because um, it sounds right. And uh, <laughs> my mate Gunti just rankled at, I was probably 22 or 23, and that um, I think doubly irked him, one that, I had the knowledge and the power in this place and that I was so young and he was, he was probably the most defiant person I had had on safari until Russians started turning up. And that's a whole other kettle of, of, um, sturgeon. <laughs> that's, uh, every other nationality has been forgiven. Um, but then he, we went to a, a place and as, as you know, you do your drive, you see some fantastic animals, hopefully some great, animal behavior and then often you you just have a break in the morning drive stop for a cup of coffee tea normally somewhere scenic typically overlooking water 
And I'd done that in a place uh, called Lechwee Haven. And I said, okay, so get out, stretch your legs. And it's, as I was setting up the coffee basket, the biggest crocodile I've seen in Africa uh, was in here and it was about four meters. Um, and a crocodile will come its own body length out of water after prey. So you decide how close to the edge you want to go. I put it to them like that a little flippantly. And I was sitting, making up my coffee, and I just watched Gunther just start striding straight towards the water's edge. There's a moment of, you know what, let it happen. And then I saw a croc on a far bank go in. And I just thought, oh, I can't have this on my conscience or professional record. So I started moving towards him, calling his name. And luckily, his wife started shouting at me as well. And when I got, I literally just had to grab him and pull him back from the water. He was deliberately ignoring me. And he turned and took a swing at me. Uh, and it was, just, it was just absolutely absurd. And, and then his wife piled in, which was fantastic. <laughs> I loved it. She came over and started slapping him. And I thought, this is a fun relationship. And I just disentangled myself. Um, but she had actually seen the croc go in as well. And so she was shouting him. I don't speak German, but enough to understand that I had been trying to save his life. And he just remained furious with me for all three. I, I, normally, you can turn it around. You have a drink around the fire and it, it, it sorts itself out. He just decided not to like me for the whole trip. And to this day, I've kind of thought, ah, aside from the intestinal disorder the crocodile would have got, would it have been a bad thing if I just left him there? Gunter is a lucky man, I guess. See, now you know not to cross me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So in terms of uh, managing camps, um, obviously, you know, you went from camp manager, you've been a guide. Um, you're also a photographer, a man of many talents. Many talents sorry. Um, tell us a little bit about your photography. Um, I, I'm flattered that you would say that because I've, I've seen your output. That's amazing. I mean, you and I are often in the same place, just in different vehicles, and you get far better photos than I. But it's something which I've only ever treated as a as a hobby. Um, but I'm fortunate just to have so much opportunity that I'm often in the right place and you know, the take a, a lot. And again, thirty years in, you start recognizing either how an animal's going to behave, so you're in the right pl place to take the photograph. Or you've just made enough mistakes that you can start saying, this is what I should be doing with the light. And I think photography for me now is a medium to get people's attention um, and then to be able to talk about wildlife. And I, I tend to, again, to the flippant, but what I'm trying to do is trick people into not noticing how much they're learning. Um, mm -hmm. or that there's a conservation message buried in there as well. And because conservation can be pretty grim in its messaging. And I, I've seen it done really heavy handedly where there's people and they're on safari. And as you said earlier, they're on holiday. You know, their primary aim is to enjoy themselves. You got somebody saying, here's an elephant and it's endangered because you don't recycle. And it's just it's like, whoa, whoa, back off, back off, seduce, seduce. Let's go more carrot than stick here. And I, I think with conservation messaging is just, again, if people fall in love with the elephant and then 
only then, once they've realized, uh, going back to what you're talking about, they are intelligent, they're sentient, um, uh, they're, 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 they live rich emotional lives with, with lifelong bonds, as long as any human bonds. And so their extinction crisis is, should affect us as much as uh, what's happening in Ukraine does. We should feel very strongly about this with elephants. But you've got to get the people in love with the elephants first before you can drop the bomb on them that one is poached every 15 minutes across Africa. And so in the space of a day, what's that? That's 96 elephants will be killed each and every day. And that it was a few years back that actually deaths surpassed births. So we are now on that downwards, downwards trend that it's so hard to recover from. And but if you lead with that, you've lost their attention, you've lost their sympathy. And I think that that's, um, so again, yeah, to, to, to come back around from all the tangents I've just gone on, um, photography for me is a way to seduce people first and foremost, mm. and then you get the messaging in behind it if people want to hear it. Absolutely. Um, and a lot of the work that I do you know, is photography, film-based, raising awareness. At the end of the day, though, people can see all these images on, on screens, on Nat Geo. They can see the photographs, but there's nothing quite like seeing an elephant up close. You just don't get that sixth sense, um, that, 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 that feeling that, you know, the, 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 the subsonic kind of hums that they make, the communication, you can see the intelligence, the emotional, mm -hmm. spiritual bonds that they have. But yeah, those photos and films just can't convey the spiritual feeling you have when you see these elephants up close in the wild. That's what I was trying to say. Um, and I don't think any photograph can really communicate that in its entirety. No, I don't. And I think it's also, it, it's multi-sensory. You mentioned the, it's not just seeing it, it's hearing it, feeling those low rumbles. And when I say feeling, you, you're, you're hearing them with your whole body. It's a vibration and, and, I've been in both with lions roaring and with elephants rumbling where the metal of the vehicle I've been in has vibrated in sync with it. And that's power. You know, that's an extraordinarily powerful thing. And if you consider humans evolved in Africa, the potency of those sounds and what they would have meant for our ancestors, I believe it's been passed down. I would never have, I would have shouted poppycock or some such thing at the idea of deep race memory until I was close to a lion that roared and this ancient part of me woke up and said, you know, climb a tree, you bloody idiot. It was every, every instinct I had was to get away. And subsequent studies done on human infants, 18 months and younger and chimps has shown we're actually born, born with a fear of snakes and spiders. We don't learn that other fears we learn, but snakes and spiders we are born with. So we do have, embedded in our DNA, something from Africa. And it's, it's a, to me, that's really powerful. And when you're out there, the, the smells, there's an entire school of thought about the smell of acacia wood smoke gives us a sense of homecoming as our ancestors would have sat around these fires. And I love that idea. I, again, I, I would have poo-pooed it uh, not so long ago, but now I, I, I'm a very firm believer in that, that we mm. all have some connection still to, to the place we evolved. That's about as spiritual as I'll ever get. Yeah, I, I was going to cry there or tear up, Peter. I wasn't, wasn't prepared for this. 
but you're absolutely <laughs> right. I mean, when you're in the Makati Kati Solpans um, or in the Okavango Delta, I mean, there is something really primeval uh, that that you're connected to there. And anyone who goes there feels in a way that I know it seems trite or you know, it's been said many times, but you really feel like you're home in, in many ways. And I mean, a lot of the recent research that's been done, it suggests that the first modern day humans or the first homo sapiens came out of that area. Um, and there's a lot of evidence showing that, you know, that was the cradle, that was the Garden of Eden. Do you think that that's true, that we, we kind of first sort of started walking on two legs in that area or first emerged from that um, area around the Makati Kadi and Okavango? Yeah, I, listen, I, I hope so. I, I hope it's true. Um, and I, I think people would say, hang on, hang on, what about East Africa? And East Africa, they find a lot of the fossils, but not necessarily of Homo sapiens. And we're, we're pipsqueaks. We're absolute babies. We've only been around 300 or 1,000, 300,000 or so years. Um, prior to that, we've got a few million years of evolutionary history and all of our cousins that we, we find skeletons from. And, and to put this in perspective, a fossil is an incredibly unlikely thing to happen. Uh, if you run the numbers, and if every all seven billion Homo sapiens on the world today died right now, statistically, we would be left with half a skeleton likely to be fossilized. That's how uncommon it is for something to fossilize. So there were so many different species of humans that we've just got no record of. We are just the only remaining one. In that sense, we're like the aardvark. At one point, there were lots of aardvarks. Now there's only one. And we are this, uh, there's actually a term for it, an endling, the endling of our genus. We are the last of our kind or kinds. And at one point, we lived alongside many other human species. They just weren't Homo sapiens. But I love the idea that Homo sapiens split off from an ancestor on the shores of Lake Maharihari, which is now the, the salt pans that you mentioned. Uh, but a lot of the animals there would have been the same as you see in the Okavango today. A lot of those same species, the bulk of them would be the same. So it's no surprise that that extraordinary wetland is where so many people sit there. Uh, and I particularly love it when they came to Africa reluctantly. It was, they're there as, you know, dragged by a spouse or partner or parent. Um, and it's when you see the lights go on, you know, the, and since we're getting spiritual, let's do it. Let's go deep, Peter, you know, as someone, I haven't spent nearly as much time yeah. in the wild as, as you have. Uh, but as someone who is spending more and more time in the, in the wilderness, uh, of course you have to ask yourselves just how do we get to the stage where in many ways we are rationally very intelligent compared to a lot of animals. We, we are amazing social, uh, socially intelligent creatures, um, but we're so far removed from the rest of the bunch. Yes, sure, we're closely related to gorillas and chimps, but it just seems so odd that we are almost able to bend the rules of nature, whereas other animals aren't able to get out of that, you know, uh, to able to bend the laws of nature or live outside the laws of nature. And of course, that our ability to do that is leading to our demise and to the demise of the rest of the, the biosphere. So 
Do you ever think about the origin of man? Do you think that, as Darwin might have said, are just descended from, from our cousins because we are fitter and we survived? Or do you think there's something else deeper than that? Do you think there was an alien influence? Or do you think that, you know, it was, you know, Planet of the Apes, the big black pillar uh, came down? You know, do, do you ever think about that? You must, you know, think about our origins and how we came to be. I mean, w- what do you think? is the story because no one really has an answer but what do you think how do you think we evolved to where we are now so i'm i'm content with not having all the pieces of the answer uh, i i don't mind sharing ancestry with the living apes that we had shared a recent ancestor um i'm i'm not grabbing at a creator origin yet but if solid evidence arrives for it, fantastic how exciting would that be and it doesn't need to be a deity. Like you said, you know, maybe it's aliens. Fantastic. There's, there is or was something out there with hopefully a lot more intelligent than us. Um, but in the meantime, I think that our big brains uh, are just a fluke like a giraffe's neck or any other, mm. you know, the, the flying snakes of Borneo, just something so odd and extreme considering their relatives. and. I just think that that we're perhaps a little bit too proud of our intelligence. Like we we pat ourselves on the back. You know, a, a cheetah is the fastest animal in world in the world, but make sure to stay shit scared the entire time, because things can still go wrong, even though you're the fastest. I think we are so confident in our brain's ability to get ourselves out of trouble that we keep putting ourselves into it. And I, I don't know why we're so proud of our intelligence. We are doing to the earth what a, a meteor did 65 million years ago. We are literally as stupid as a rock. And we're, aren't we the cleverest species on earth? And it's like, once we've wiped it out, I don't think we qualify for that anymore. Um, you know, all the things that did not wipe out the earth can probably hang on to that and, and just not us. We get to be the dumbest. I think you touched on a great point there. You know, a lot of people... When I in my talks, they say, you know, how do we how do we save the planet? No one, we're not going to save the planet. We're just talking about can yeah. we save ourselves from going extinct? We're destroying the biosystems that support our very existence. Um, the planet will be just fine if we destroy everything. It'll regenerate in a few million years. We won't be around. Yeah. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, and, and that's it's the hubris of mankind to think that we can actually influence the outcome of the planet. I think all, all we can do is try and mitigate the um, the damage that we've done at this point. I mean, let's not get too depressed with climate change, but really we've caused so much damage uh, already. I, I'm not sure if we're going to be able to fix them. See, I love what you've just said, and I haven't, I have never thought of it that way before, that we're not trying to save the planet, we're trying to save ourselves. And you know, from a marketing spin, it's actually got to be that. And I think this is the bubble that you and I both live in, and and presumably your listeners as well, if they're listening to a podcast about nature, is we are more, most likely our friends are not trophy hunters or consumers of rhino horn because we could not be friends with those people. And so within that bubble, we don't realize how few people give a flying fart about nature and wildlife. And it it's reflected in, if you look at charitable donations, Wildlife gets less than one cent of every dollar given in the US uh, or one pence out of every pound in the UK 
And it, it just shows that what people actually care about are health. There's a lot more money going to health, kids' health in particular. And, you know, I'm not, I don't begrudge that. Uh, but wild animals, a fraction of each dollar given to charities by corporations, by private individuals, it's not really high on people's priority. And it's going to take a wake-up call like this 40-degree day in the UK. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the stereotypically grey and pizzling UK is baking in the sunlight. There's acres of pasty flesh with bad tattoos all over the place. You know, there's, we've seen it around the world, these extreme weather events. Maybe that's where people start saying, well, this is inconveniencing me now, so I'd like to act on it. I think the greatest thing that's happening with climate change is insurance companies are now starting to charge more and, and refuse to insure the seaside mansions of millionaires and billionaires. And so now it's, it's going to be like, oh, well, well, we better do something about this then. If my place in Malibu can't be insured, this, is, this has now become very, very real. Uh, I, you, know, this, you, you take the silver lining where you can. Absolutely. And that's why I think all that film, Don't Look Up, really encapsulated that sort of ludicrousy mm. uh, and hypocrisy of the whole, of the, the human effort right now. Um, as you say, Europe is burning uh, and we're, we're investing more and more into fossil fuels than ever before because of the, the war with Russia. It just, it, it, it's just beyond belief. Now, a quick word about our sponsor for this episode. Our Future Nature is brought to you by Authentic Gallery. Authentic Gallery makes buying and collecting stunning and impactful art easy, with a portion of proceeds of every purchase going towards vetted partner charities. Want to buy art and contribute to an impactful cause at the same time? Check out Authentic Gallery, spelled A-W-E-T-H-E-N-T-I-C gallery.com. So please visit AuthenticGallery.com to start browsing now. Um, what scares me, of course, is like, we had the pandemic, uh, uh, as atrocious as it was, as, as lethal as it was for, for, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. It only, it, it stopped us from going out. We all got locked down as a species and we only reduced the carbon footprint or carbon emissions by 9% for 2021, I believe. And that to me just sums up the enormity of the challenge because not only do we have to stop emitting carbon emissions like now, we have to suck carbon out of the atmosphere in order to keep within the one and a half to two degree threshold, which I, we know we're not going to hit. Um, we're not going to keep it under two degrees. We're already yeah. at one and a half uh, and, and climbing very fast. Yeah. And I think you know, we're seeing that with species extinction as well. Um, there was a brief lull in poaching. So once um, all these lockdowns hit and people could not travel, the, the true importance of the safari industry um, or tourism within conservation was shown because if you look at a heat map of poaching sites, they are never near a game drive road, you know, the, the, a safari road. They're always away from it. So every safari vehicle is an anti-poaching unit. Now, they're not engaging with poachers. It's not a dangerous activity. But the mo you know, poachers know that those are eyes and ears. Even just seeing human tracks crossing a road, a guide would say, These, you know, there's somebody has been walking here that shouldn't be here straight away. The, mm. the real anti-poaching units can go check it out. Um, with those gone, poaching started coming right up towards camp. So there's, even, there's a camp in Botswana 
where poachers spent a night or two in one of the tents, one of the safari tents, with brazen. There were caretakers there, and they just chose an end tent. Um, yeah, absolutely brazen. That's how bold they they were getting. So this brief lull, which was because people might be killing elephants or rhinos, but there was no shipping for a short while, and they they're just sitting on a mountain of evidence. After that, once shipping came back, which was pretty quick, uh, it, it went into overdrive, and rhinos were just an R being absolutely hammered. Um, I gave the timing earlier. It's an elephant every 15 minutes. A rhino is about every eight hours. So it sounds less severe, but you know we've got just under half a million elephants and we're talking the most populous of the rhino species, the white rhinos, 20,000. And again, the, the deaths versus births is terrifying. Um, we, are, we are looking at just rhinos being extinct. My, I've got kids. My, my oldest is six. At this point, it seems unlikely that there will be wild rhinoceros by the time she's in her 20s. And that would happen a hell of a lot faster if it wasn't just that they're getting so rare, poachers find them. It's harder for a poacher to find one. Uh, so that's pretty terrifying. And, and this is the where we know this. These numbers are freely available. But just as with climate change, people switched off, don't look up, um, and went through to the squid game instead because it's more appealing than the truth. Yeah, it's, it's shocking. I, I actually went to see the northern white rhino in Lewa before the last mm. male passed away. So that was a, a species that was going extinct right in front of my eyes. It was really, really very sad. And as you say, rhinos are getting hit harder than elephants. Um, and, you know, having done years of awareness raising and trying to stop the illegal wildlife trade in, in Hong Kong with the ivory and the rhino horn being translocated through the city, it, it's just, it's crazy to me that we were having such a hard time getting people to stop procuring and consuming these animal parts for pure luxury. It, it just, it's mind boggling. Um, and a lot of people often ask, you know, why do you photograph the elephants? Well, they're the most charismatic, magnificent creatures. If we can't get people to stop killing them, how do we get people to start caring about the small stuff, the small stuff like the bees, yeah. like the insects that we are wiping out? Uh, they're the creatures that we actually depend more on for our everyday survival. Insecticide is a very real thing. Yeah. And um, the, because the rampant use of pesticides uh, of industrialized agriculture and we've depleted our soils, that's actually more scary than if we lose all the elephants tomorrow. But again, you can't just bash people on, on the head with that every day. No, and I agree with you. There, there's, and, and it's interesting when you speak to someone and if, if I was to say, criticize how lax Hong Kong is on ivory, which has often been the gateway through to mainland China for ivory trade, people say, well, you know, you're not from there. You don't have a right to say something. And I think what we're now learning is that climate change is affecting us all. We can all have a say about the emitters. That's fair that we do that. And a point that I often make to Americans is that they are reliant on the Mahadi Hadi pans, uh, which we've been brought up a few times. It's the biggest network of salt pans on the planet. And NASA identified it as one of the fifth or sixth most nutrient-rich places on the planet. Uh, you can always get confused. And nothing's growing out there, but it's because of salt on the surface and a lack of rainfall that nothing grows there. But it is it was the floor of a lake. It's got all of those sediments. It's full of goodness. 
And every year there is a regular wind that picks up nutrients from there and it blows around the world and lands in the agricultural belt of the United States. One year the wind misfired slightly and it actually caused a brownout in New York, a sandstorm in New York. And that was Botswana you know, playing tourist to the Statue of Liberty and Empire State and so on. So this idea that <clears throat> what happens over that part of the world is not going to affect me over that part of the world. We, we've got to scrap the notion of borders when it comes to conservation, when it comes to the, the future of our species and, and the environments we live in. Because every, you know, if we could get a unified policy on climate change, it would be extraordinary if we could get people to work together instead of this nitpicking. If we could get political will in Vietnam just to say, <clears throat> no, we're getting rid of rhino horn. And the only people they'd be putting out of business are criminals. The same people who run the rhino horn syndicates, the ones that run the heroin trade and sex trafficking rings for women, kids, and so on. So if we're putting them out of business or taking money from their pocket, surely that's a good thing. You don't need to care about conservation to think that that's a good thing, I think, unless you're really into heroin and despicable acts with children. So you know, any, anybody that says, what does this matter? They're blinkered. And uh, I often say you don't need to be interested in conservation to, to, to not feel desperate about it. All of these things are going to affect you, whether you live in New York and never leave it, or Singapore, where I believe you are now, Hong Kong, which we've mentioned, all, you're going to be affected by the depletion of nature. Absolutely. It's, um, that, now you got me ranting. Yeah. It's the interconnectedness of everything that uh, humans still have a hard time comprehending. Um, I mean, without wanting to be too bleak, you said that your daughter, probably by the time she's 20, 25, there will be no wild rhinoceros in Southern Africa. Do you think that's mm. the case for elephants or other species? There are only 7,000 cheetah, for example. There are only less than 5,000 wild dogs. What's your take? Uh, you know, what's your prognosis for that? Do you think they're going to survive? I, I think there'll be far fewer of all of them. And um, I, I think the way that a lot of documentaries present wild places is that they're, they're somewhat boundless. And I think there's been a shift in this. And it's great. There's there's more of a reality check, even if it's just in the, the tech end of it. Again, you know, they don't want to be too grim. Uh, but this idea that Africa is just a sea of wildlife with small pockets of humanity is it's very much the opposite. It's an ocean of humans with small shrinking islands of wilderness left. And and that is not the fault of the African people. You know, we're all sitting. Uh, again, I'm sitting here in the UK, uh, and I could wave a fist down south towards Africa, saying, "Yeah, you stupid bastards! What are you doing? Why are you killing all your animals?" But I don't need to worry about bears taking the kids to school because they got wiped out a long time ago, and you know I don't need to worry about wolves because they were wiped out a long time ago. And if there was a suggestion they were brought back, I mean, I for one would be all for it. Uh, you know, run faster, kids. Um, but I imagine I would be alone in the community and our house would have eggs thrown at it for my advocacy. So uh, that's, you know, there, there's a lot of hypocrisy when we shake a fist at people far less well off than us. Um, but, you know, bringing it back, yeah, I, I don't, I think those islands are going to shrink and shrink. Some of them will disappear altogether. 
And that's not to say that the effort is not worth it. If you had a friend or loved one of any sort who was ill, uh, you would fight tooth and claw to keep them healthy, see if you can get them healthy, see if you can bring them back. And I think that's what conservationists, people like yourself and you know the people I work with, is just say, oh, we, we will okay, I mean, look at the Ukrainians, what an inspiration. You, you turn, you fight, you're outnumbered, you're outgunned. I bet you will fight. And I think that's really what we're doing in conservation is, and there's a lot more intelligence. It feels like there's a lot more intelligence to it now than there was when I first started out. Conservation used to be about better fences, and now it's about better relationships. And I think that's what's going to swing it around. That's where the hope lies. Yeah, very well said. And uh, it is a tough fight. And, but I think you touched upon a very important truth there that it's, it's almost a moral, it is a moral obligation to try and save these animals. It's not just, oh, well, what do they matter to us? They don't benefit us. It's, it's a moral duty to preserve these beautiful creatures and preserve the biodiversity for future generations. Um, and we have to do everything we can to, to do that. How do you kind of navigate that very tricky uh, discourse uh, when you talk to people about conservation? Conservation is now about better relationships. And mm. I think mentoring people, finding people in communities who have an interest in conservation and were sidelined by white men because they didn't have a PhD from the right university that's not how it can be. Every panel I see on conservation, it's a lot of white guys, and that's got to change. And it, it probably won't happen quickly. Uh, you know, white, old white guys are going to have a firm grip on things. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of Rupert Murdoch's of conservation out there. And, mm. um, but it will change or we lose everything. And that's, that's where I'm far more interested when people are talking about conservation in Africa, it's like, well, it's an African problem, but a lot of the solutions are in Asia. And rather than wave a fist, let's engage, let's find out who's using rhino horn, who's using ivory, why are they using it? What could deter them from doing that? That saves you, if you can start figuring that out, it's gonna ultimately be a lot more effective than you know, boots and bullets. Those are still relevant and important, but that's, uh, that's a finger in the dike. Um, and that's a reference to Holland, the Netherlands, just in case anybody's thinking that I'm being anti-woke just for its own sake. Note, noted. Um, which brings us- <laughs> Now you're nervous of how many people I've just offended. <laughs> Ooh. Uh, <laughs> someone might be hunting something else very soon. Um, yeah. That's great. Uh, but okay, so which brings us to a very, quite an interesting conversation before we start talking about uh, a bit more about natural selection and the company you've um, helped found and set up. The, uh, the government in Botswana has allowed hunting again, hunting of elephants. And uh, of course, that's caused an outcry in, in a lot of the conservation community. Uh, within Botswana, uh, for example, the Joubert's wrote an open letter to the government criticizing them and telling mm. no one to come into Botswana as a protest. Um, since then, the Joubert's haven't been let back into Botswana. So there's a very 
tricky dichotomy here. I said tricky again, but I guess it's it's a political dichotomy and one which is not easy to navigate. But uh, how can you have, on the one hand, a country that's trying to do these um, luxurious safaris for conservation, and then they're allowing hunting on the other hand? And how do we how do we reconcile those two industries? Because on the one hand, photo safaris are amazing and beneficial and bring in a lot of money, but do they, can they bring in enough to support these concessions and areas if hunting is removed entirely? Uh, I think they can bring in enough money. And it is something where, so I disagreed with the reintroduction of hunting. I, I emotionally 100% disagree that I disagree with trophy hunting completely on an emotional level. Um, but then President Masisi of Botswana made a point when there was the outcry where he said, okay, this is absolutely fine. I will donate 200 elephants to each and every country that wants to put some sanctions on, on Botswana and you let them loose in the areas you live and see how you feel about it then. And again, I disagree with his sentiment entirely, but I can't argue against what he's saying there. And there's a, elephants have been expanding into areas where they've not been in generations, if at all, before. Uh, there's a community south of the Okavango where about 200 elephants have turned up. They're trashing crops. There is no tourism industry down there. Um, and I don't know what the solution is. I, I wish I had, a, could, had the intellect, you know, this big homo sapiens brain, to come up with a way of getting these elephants to leave that area. But there are resources there for them. They've discovered it. They've got no reason to leave. And even if you move them away, it's true. Elephants do not forget. They will find their way back. So in that instance, you think, well, if, if they're going to be culled and there is a revenue to be made from it, who cares that it's trophy hunting? And I still rankle with that because the idea that trophy hunting is for conservation is absolute, thorough, utter, steaming pile of bullshit. Nobody hunts an elephant because they're hoping to conserve it. That's just the crap that they speak. That's like somebody saying, the only reason that I sleep with prostitutes is to create jobs for women. It's very important to me. And it's like, you understand there's far better ways to do that. So you would never believe the, the second guy in that scenario. So I don't know that hunters even believe themselves when they're saying, oh, no, I hunt lions so that villagers get fed and so what are you doing for villagers when you're not hunting lions? And why is it that every single trophy hunter's a white guy? And I'm talking about the actual guys that lead the hunts. Why has that industry not evolved? The photographic industries move to almost entirely local management. Uh, there, are, there are a few exceptions, but you know, that's, that's been a paradigm shift just in my era, in the, in the time I've been doing this. Hunting, it's still white guys, and it's because the people coming in don't want to sit with black Africans. So there's a racist element to it. It is not for conservation. It's, yeah, it's a really despicable industry. But then there's this small part that says, and here's some numbers that show that these communities would just poach the elephants, exacerbate the issues um, in place if they weren't deriving benefit from the trophy hunting industry. So you can tear yourself apart between your feelings and your intellect on trophy hunting. Yeah, very well said. Uh, th those um, those white hunters tend to be cigar touting white hunters. Um, 
with big, big biceps uh, in general. Um, why do you think that people get a kick out of hunting? I, 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 a lot of the time, these hunters from abroad, they tend to be dentists or insurance brokers, wealthy, generally speaking. But what do you think? Do you think they really get a kick out of it? What, 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 what is the actual danger in shooting an animal from 50 yards behind a safari trail? I, I just don't get what the thrill might be of seeing an elephant collapse on the ground. Uh, maybe I'm missing something. It is absolutely, uh, it's, it's a bragging thing. And I think the reason it's mainly men is we are hardwired to show off. And to me, and we all do it in different ways. We, and we're doing it whether we realize it or not. Um, and for them, it's, you know, the neighbor's got a Porsche. So if I get a Porsche, I'm not one upping him. I could get a Ferrari, but to be honest, I can't. What costs the same as a Porsche? Oh, shooting an elephant and a lion. Well, he's never done that. And I've spoken to people who've been in the industry, who've changed tack, and they all say that, you know, saying like up to 90% of the animals killed, it's actually the professional hunter, the person who by law accompanies them who actually shoots the animal ultimately. So the dentist fires and hits it in the back leg and as it's trying to race off to the bushes to, to, um, to bleed out, it's the trophy hunter who puts the kill shot in. And then, of course, the dentist has it mounted like this, you know, as, if it, as if he shot it, as it let to attack him. That didn't happen. Um, you know, so you're, you're a, a feeble liar if you shoot a lion or an elephant and then pretend that it somehow makes you a superior human being. Um, as you might've noticed, these people irk me. It's, the, it's just such a lying and corrupt, corrupt industry. Again, when hunters go, oh yeah, and the money goes back to a village, like, prove it. Every study has shown that you know, 90 something percent of it stays with the hunter. They are not better off economically by this happening, uh, some very rare examples where that's not true. Um, yeah, it, it's and, and it's a, and you're trusting a system. They might go and do a hunt in Zimbabwe, and they're going to trust that the Zimbabwean government is incorruptible when it comes to quotas. Oh no, they're only taking a healthy number of male lions each year to make sure that the pride stay intact. Would you put your money in a Zimbabwean bank? And their answer to that would be no. So then why do you trust that this is well-regulated? Um, again, bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. That's all it is. Totally agree with you. Um, and I think, I mean, one, one, one final point on this hunting theme that I wanted to make is, it, it, my observation in the wild is that most animals are pretty scared of humans. I mean, it's certainly in the, in the Maasai, you mm -hmm. get a, you know, a lion sees a human a mile off, they'll run away. Most animals just want to get out of your way, unless you're really, you know, up its trunk or right in its face, like a hippo. Most of the time, yeah, they just they don't want to risk fighting, right? And I would have even ventured to say that animals, generally speaking, are scared of humans. Uh, and yet, the hunting industry has kind of created this artifice, the big five, you know, the, these incredibly dangerous mm. creatures that will kill you unless you kill them first. Uh, probably to benefit the hunting industry. Now, it's all very well me saying this for the comfort of modern civilization. I'm sure living amongst these animals hundreds of years ago, we would be more exposed and more vulnerable. But nowadays, they aren't dangerous to us. 
by and large. Yes, you do get human-wildlife yeah. conflict. I'm not saying that that doesn't happen, but I mean, my sense is that most of the time, animals are scared of us rather than the other way around. Do you agree with that? Yeah. So, it, it, yeah, absolutely. I, and, and you will get, so just as we spoke about baboons raiding a cat, you might have an elephant raiding crops or a lion taking cattle. And that has an incredibly serious impact on the life of a, an agriculturalist who's in a, a remote rural area in any country in Africa. Um, and they will have no love for elephants or lions. And, and I can understand that completely. Uh, just they, they love them as much as we love the tax man, because that's what these things are doing, but they're not even getting the benefit of hospitals built or roads made. So I understand why those communities detest a lot of large wildlife. Um, but then if you say to the hunter, okay, here's an elephant that's consistently raiding crops. If you're really doing this because it can benefit it, that's the one we need to take out. Oh, by the way, it's one of those elephants that has no tusks. They won't. They won't go near. Or it's a, it's a male lion, um, but he doesn't have a mane. They won't go near it because it's all about the biggest and the best. And that's how, again, you know, it's just about showing off. Or even if you say it's an elephant, but he's, one of his tusks is broken. He's only got one tusk. No, they don't want it. They want the nice, even, large set. And that, that would be, and you know, this whole idea of, oh, we only take the, the males past their prime. Bullshit. A male lion past his prime is dead within weeks because he loses his territory and he dies almost straight away. You're not, they're not catching that window. That's not happening. And the idea that an elephant is past his prime, they've shown that their beating, breeding peak carries on right up to close to death. Um, what they're doing is effectively is, is if we said, you can now trophy hunt humans, but only those that are six foot five or over. Pretty soon basketball is going to get a lot less interesting. And suddenly you notice that the, the, the average human height starts shrinking down. Because then they go say, cool, well, we've, we've run out of six foot fivers. We're dropping it to six three and then to six foot. And, you know, the, the next thing, only the hobbit hole in Manila has got any patrons in it. Um, you know, the, the, and that's exactly what they're doing. Animal sizes are shrinking because of trophy hunting and poaching played a part as well. So, again, you know, uh, it's bullshit. Everything they say is <laughs> everything they write, everything they say. And that the sad reality is the funding for a lot of this, the funding, the lobbying for Botswana to resume trophy hunting, elephant hunting, came from Safari Club International, which is in part or largely funded by the NRA. And the NRA, as we all know, has hijacked American democracy, which is why they didn't care when Russia did it. So they're used to it. Um, but in terms of that, so as a conservationist or as somebody opposed to trophy hunting, that's what you're up against. We are up against billions of dollars. And again, we're getting less than one cent of every dollar from charitable donations around the globe. So it's a, it's a very uphill battle. Thank you for calling them out. I've never heard anyone call them out quite so candidly. So um, <laughs> I, I think what you just said was brilliant. And uh, you just put a target on your head, Peter, but uh, just, uh, it's okay. Right. You passed your prime, mate. It's all right. Yeah, that's um, it. Yeah. But <laughs> if, if, they, if, they want to, if they want to shoot me with a dart gun and give me a vasectomy, all for it. <laughs> um but yeah you you make a good point about evolutionary pressure and we sometimes think that evolution moves in slow motion 
But you do see a lot more tussless females in the wild now, tussless female elephants because of that pressure. Or the, the, the females or the males getting with, with big tusks are getting wiped out. And the recessionary gene for tussless females is uh, growing stronger in the population. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, evolution can take a long time to do things, but it can also be close to static for a while. And then there is an event. Um, there's a great book called The Beak of the Finch that talks about this, um, and it's set in the Galapagos. But you might have uh, an island breaks away from the mainland, and that's going to place brand new pressures there, and a ton of them are going to die off. And those that survive due to some dominant or, or beneficial trait will become the new form of that animal. And I think this is the thing people mistake with evolution that it has a purpose, it's always building towards the better. Um, there's a, a phenomenon on islands where typically mammals get smaller. So in human history, within human times, there were elephants in Crete, the island of Crete, but they were tiny. They would have been shoulder height on, uh, you know me, and I'm like five, nine or so, uh, tiny little elephants, because that's all the island could support. So evolution is not always about bigger, stronger, faster, better, smarter. It's, it's about mm. survival. Um, and Darwin actually never said survival of the fittest. That was a journalist describing his book. Which brings us beautifully to natural selection. So tell us a bit more about natural, natural selection, what you're doing with this company, why it's so important. To our listeners, Natural Selection is a safari company. Um, I've been to two or three of the camps, Jack's camp being one of them. It's, it's a phenomenal camp in the Makati Kadi. Um, but I'll let you describe a bit more, Peter, about why this is such a special company. Uh, or not. I think it's because it was founded. Found, no, no, it is. I, I, well, I believe it is. And obviously <laughs> I'm paid to say so. They, they make me say this. Uh, no, I, I joined the company of <laughs> absolute free will and delight because the idea was uh, rather than forging ahead with a new idea, was actually winding the clock back a bit to when safaris were fun. And it's safaris seem to have gone taking a bit of a misstep in they moved towards luxury, but the luxury was all about the camp rather than the experience. And a lot of the properties you go to now, they look magnificent in the magazine, but that sequin cushion is not so comfortable to sit on. So it was about saying, let's make this a human experience again and give people the opportunity to enjoy being in the wild. That the conservation message is through and through if people want it. And even if they don't, just by coming on safari, they are a philanthropist. So uh, Patagonia, the clothing company, uh, or outdoor company, I should say, started something called 1% for the Planet, which is a really fantastic initiative. And we decided to go a bit more, and it's 1.5% of our turnover, not our profit. 1.5% of our turnover is set aside for conservation programs. And conservation is, I'm using that word to encompassing community initiatives as well, because I believe that is the same thing. Um, an example of that is one of our properties, Mapula, is very close in a straight line to a series of three villages. And the middle village has no school. So the kids have to walk either eight or 12 kilometers for education. And we offered to build a school, but the government said they would not gazette it. So the kids wouldn't have an actual qualification. Uh, they couldn't afford the teachers and so on. Um, 
and just didn't have the numbers. We offered to pay for that too. So what we ended up doing was buying two minivans and we now deliver 176 children each day, morning and afternoon, to and from school. Out of a community of a thousand on average, two a year were being killed by elephants. And since we've introduced them and I'm touching wood, we've not had a fatality in five years. And that sounds like a straight community feel good thing, but these people now have fewer reasons to dislike elephants. It's much easier to have a conversation about conservation. And it's also making us a good neighbor. We've employing a lot more from the village than they previously had. So poaching's dropped. Poaching's greatly, greatly reduced because we can have these conversations now. And that's the kind of thing, it's an exciting thing to be a part of is, I often describe natural selection as being fraudulent because we're actually a conservation organization disguised as a tourism business. Uh, if we don't get the tourism business right, we don't generate fun. So we want people to come and have a fantastic stay, see a ton of animals, have fun, you know, have a great holiday. And ideally they're gonna leave so in love with a place that they, they do wanna protect it. They, they do wanna be part of something that is looking after the land and maybe expanding wilderness areas. You know, that's always, that's the dream. That's the, the biggest challenge of all is can you, can we take back some of the places that have gone to agricultural mining without negatively impacting our surrounding communities? You know, partner with them instead and say, we can give you a better life by doing this. Uh, and again, we've had some success with that as well. So it's, it's an exciting thing to be a part of. We've got one area in Namibia, which was 100% trophy hunting. And it's now 100% photographic. And we are making the owner of that land more money than he ever made from trophy hunting. And I love that because he's gonna tell his friends, the, the landowners, that story. And that's not the story you hear from the hunters as you might imagine. So I love being a part of it. It's, it's fantastic. So everybody come on safari, come with natural Amazing. selection and, and straight away you're doing good work. Fantastic. And then just, just to um, follow on from that, I mean, you're contributing back to community conservation. What are you doing as a camp to minimize impact on your surroundings? For example, are you running on solar? What are the responsible kind of management procedures that you implement? Because obviously wherever the humans go, there's impact. How, how do you minimize human impact in those wild spaces? Uh, that, that's again been a huge change that I've seen in, in 28 years is most properties have moved towards solely. You've got a generator sitting there, which is kept as a backup um, for that freak thing. As I said, raining in June, the solar just doesn't quite cut it. Um, but solar technology is zipping along. We're getting new panels, new batteries that are just able to give us much more bang for our buck. Um, and it's not cheap. When we rebuilt Jack's camp just a few years ago, it was over a million dollars on the solar and on the batteries for it. Uh, and it's great. You're out the front of the camp. It's very Hemingway or Roosevelt. And out the back, it's all Elon Musk. Um, and it's te it is literally Tesla batteries. Um, but there's that. There's the way we handle food waste. Uh, moving from plastic single-use bottles to... People are I went alone in this. You know, here's here's one from a property that's not ours that I brought back with me because I liked the bottle, and I think we should use a similar style. 
we might be competing for bums in beds, but we often share ideas. If somebody's got a good conservation initiative, we, we love to share it in the industry. Anybody else's success in conservation benefits us all. Uh, it's, the safari industry is a fun one to be a part of. Now you have some personality clashes, but in general, we're all on the same page. And if somebody has a great technique for managing waste, they will tell us about it. And then we can work as, as a larger unit, get some economy of scale on it. And I love that. You know, the, the, the way we treat wastewater has, has now got so much more sophisticated than it used to be. Uh, the way we heat water, all solar, used to be what we called a donkey boiler, which was a, a welded together metal stand. You lit a fire underneath it. Tell us when you'd like a shower. And some guy out the back would be lighting a fire and say, give it 10 minutes. And then only shower for 10. Um, you know, that's, and that's obviously, so that's a reduction in firewood. Um, it's a reduction in diesel that we not only have to run and burn, but transport out to the properties. The footprint of a safari camp has reduced drastically. Some places are shifting to electric vehicles. Uh, that's the more remote you get, the harder that is to manage. But um, it, we get better all the time. Uh, it's, it's a fun process to be a part of. And 20 years from now, I'll look back at what we're doing now and, and mutter and shake my head at how stupid we are right now. Well, Peter, I can hear your tribe. Um kicking up a storm in the background, so I can't keep you for much longer. Uh, <laughs> um, but for, for those uh, listeners out there who want to, who want to make a difference, who, who want to do things better, uh, what advice would you give them in, say, creating uh, more conscientious businesses or uh, you know, social enterprises? Any, any words of wisdom before we, we sign off? Yeah, I would think that you can have a positive impact wherever you live and find out what is what kind of nature there is in your local area and what threat there is to it. You can act locally and all of these islands of wildlife have an important part to play. You might have a local park. I mean, where again in Shrewsbury I live, they've just reintroduced the European beaver and that's a that's a real positive. Um my mother-in-law actually signed me up for the local bird club and I started reading the conservation work they're doing, restoration of wetlands. And again, I'm enjoying being a part of that. Um, Africa always seems so glamorous. Well, I should be acting more locally as well. As a business, offer your support to that. Maybe you might run a hardware store. Uh, find out what your local bird club's doing because bird clubs are often the ones doing a lot of work, as I said, places like wetlands. Maybe they're building a bird hide. Help them out with the resources you've got. If you run a sandwich shop, maybe you can take some sandwich shops to the people doing it. I don't know. There's always an opportunity to support a conservation initiative. But maybe the, most, the best thing you can do is educate your own kids or your grandkids or your nieces and nephews. There's this little Goldilocks zone between about 7 to 8, 11 to 12, when kids can ask a smart enough question about the world and handle the sometimes tough answer you've got to give. And they're young enough not to be worried about being cool. Once they hit 11, 12, being cool is more important than anything. And they don't want to ask the questions and show that they care about anything because, you know, they've got to be emo instead. But there's that little window there, that seven where they, they can 
it's okay for them to hear about climate change without making them sob themselves to sleep all night. You don't want that. That's when you hook them into conservation and it's their future. You're, you're doing them a disservice if you don't. So perhaps that's the opportunity of anybody that can't get on safari for whatever reason is make sure that the next generation is committed. Um, I think that's a really important thing. Very wise words. Thank you, Peter. Been great chatting, hearing all your stories, but also opening you up and you showing us that you actually do care and you aren't stupid <laughs> as a rock like the rest of us. Uh, but I think the best, the best quote <laughs> from the uh, chat today was, uh, make sure you are all still shit scared. And I think that's the, the main takeaway from today's chat. So um, <laughs> thank you very much indeed. <laughs> and I will remain shit scared because I think we all have to, to, to remain shit scared if we're going to get through this. So thanks again. Uh, enjoy the boiling heat in the UK in Shrewsbury, 800 meters from yeah. Darwin with your family and say hi to all, all the kids. And uh, hopefully see you in the bush soon. Thanks. Yes, I will see you out there as soon as we can be there. Thanks for having me on the show. Cheers, Peter. Take care. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to Our Future Nature. Please remember to like and subscribe to keep up with the latest episodes. And if you enjoyed the podcast, it would really help if you could take a minute to leave us a review on Apple or Spotify. Much appreciated. Please follow us on Instagram at Our Future Nature Pod for behind the scenes and extra information. You can also follow me at Shawnee Davis want to be updated on the work that I do in green entrepreneurship, advocacy, and conservation. And finally, Our Future Nature was produced and powered by Authentic Studio. Thanks, everyone. See you next time.